loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Janice Clark Clark Johnston. Jan's been a school psychologist in public schools, supervising psychologist at a mental health center, employee assistance therapist, and private practice family psychologist. In addition to providing therapy for children, adults, Adults and adolescents, she's led many staff development workshops for schools and industry on parenting and child development, assertiveness, discipline, problem solving, sexual abuse prevention, behavior disorder intervention, stress management, and grieving. A frequent presenter at national psychology and educational conferences, Johnston has published 13 journal, journal articles, three book chapters, and a parenting book. It takes a child to raise a parent, stories of evolving child and parent development. Today we'll be talking about her new book, Midlife Maze, a map to recovery and rediscovery after loss. Welcome, Jen. Hey, I am pleased to have this chance to talk with you. And the other way around as well. I um, I really appreciated your book in the sense of um, being both um, both personally and, and professionally disclosing about the pain of grief, but also I found it a very encouraging book, a, a kind of a um, uh, the best of cheerleading, I guess. Okay, <laughs> you know, well, kind I'm, of. I, I, you I'm made glad it. That you made the diff- part comes through because it really does. <laughs> grieving is a tough topic. I I couldn't agree more, and also inspiring at the same time. Yes, I uh, do think that there is a lot that one can learn through the grieving process. It's not an easy process. I would never suggest that it's easy, nor is it something that one wants to encounter in their midlife years. Midlife is the time when you're busy. You might be raising children. You might be raising your career. It's just a busy time of life. And then, Mm -hmm. out of the blue sometimes, loss happens. It could be loss of your job. It could be loss of your good health or perhaps someone that you love. It could be a death. It's often that people lose their parents to death when they are in midlife. And we're not very good in our culture at handling loss. Yes, you know, it's interesting you say that because uh, when my wife died, I was 42. She was sick for 10 years. So that was definitely, you know, I had a at that time a two-and-a-half-year-old and a 14-year-old in my right. home. And um, it was, uh, some people in that 10 years had gotten pretty well adjusted to the realities of grief and loss by being around us. 
But um, it was not common for the people we knew before that time to have experienced those type of things. Uh, Now I find with my parents dying and all of that, uh, much later, I'm 63 now, I have a whole lot of company. Yes. So so in a sense, that's a difference too, isn't it? That um, we somehow... Um, think of those kind of losses as a later in life phenomenon when in fact they they aren't entirely. Yes, that's true. I think one of the most common losses that happens in midlife is the loss of a child through miscarriage. Miscarriage is not something that we really deal with in America. It's almost a taboo topic, and yet it's a very frequent occurrence. But it's not the only loss. As I mentioned, it could be loss of your job, or it could be loss of a partnership through separation or divorce. So there's just a lot of loss that happens in midlife, and that's why I wrote this book. It was apparent to me in my private practice that so many of my midlife clients were experiencing loss. And the other thing is, many times people haven't processed whatever loss they may have had from childhood, and then they reach midlife, and that seems to be a time where you start looking a bit at where have I come from and where do I want to go? Because you're recognizing, and certainly with the death of one's parents, this brings it home, you're recognizing that life doesn't go on forever and you have kind of a time where you're looking at what do I want to accomplish before I die? So yes, and it's and it's a it maybe slightly more real. Yes, is that indeed. what you're saying? Midlife it, is a time of reckoning. <laughs> yes, and could you just in case people don't have this this particularly in their minds, could you say about what age range you're talking about when you say midlife? Sure, the age range that I focus on in the book is 35 to 64. And that is a really large part of our development overall. I didn't make that up. That age range was actually set by a longitudinal study called MIDAS, or Mm -hmm. Midlife, in the United States. So it takes in a lot of people. Indeed it does. And, and And a lot of different life stages, if I think about you know, the different stages of my own life and the people I know, what somebody is is coping with at 35 is remarkably different than at 60, let's say, uh, by and large. Mm -hmm. So so also, one size does not fit all that way, yes? (laughs) Yes. One size does not fit all, and certainly one person's grieving process is not like someone else's. Um, I know that uh, you were somewhere in that age range when, because you mentioned it in the book, when you lost your husband. Yeah. Um, did did were you thinking about this book before that happened, or did it did it kind of get more vivid for you 
uh, after that? Uh, how did those two fit together? That's a really good question, Cheryl. I did think about loss because I had in my own family of friends, I had friends who were dying. I had a sister-in-law who died of cancer. So I was thinking about loss, but I would have to say that the sudden death of my husband, who died of a heart attack when he was 54 and I was 52, really just shook me to the core. Mm. And so while... While there were these other deaths of people that I felt close to, having somebody in your household, someone very, very special in your household, die suddenly, that was another whole level of grieving. So I, I had both the personal grieving stories along with my work with people who had a lot of grief. So it was a combination. But certainly the death of my husband, I would say, propelled me to write this book. That's what I would have anticipated. You know, that's sort of the subject of this show, isn't it? How how these deep, deep losses transform us potentially. And what I noticed in reading your book is that um, you had some, you know, I would say after my wife's long illness and the fact that we were paying attention all along to the fact that she would likely die of her illness, it was never uh, considered curable in any way or even, she was never even in remission. I did feel prepared, so different from you, um, uh, you, you can't uh, you can't be prepared, but you can prepare, and I did get an opportunity to do that. But what I noticed in reading your book is that there was some sense that uh, you had a little bit of a head start when it happened, and what I mean by that is. Um, you knew to let grief happen, you know, you knew that you had to just kind of follow your nose a little bit, uh, which a lot of people don't know. And it makes sense to me now because you're telling me you had already explored, you had already grieved in, in some losses, you had already explored grief as a part of living and uh, yeah. I don't know were you were you aware of that at the time that you had sort of uh, at least the beginnings of a way to put one foot in front of the other well I think you're bringing up a good point as a psychologist studying all kinds of topics Yes, grieving was something that I knew about academically. I certainly had read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her famous book on death and dying, was a part of my skill set. I knew about the five stages. I also knew that Kubler-Ross didn't intend for those five stages to be followed in some kind of linear pattern. In fact, later she wrote about the fact that people were misconstruing the five stages, 
they were talking about them as if everyone starts with denial and then they move to anger and down the line. But she never intended that. In fact, people might not have each one of those five stages. Some people, when they grieve, don't have anger. It's more sadness that they experience. So I knew from a book learning point of view, and certainly as a psychologist working with clients, I knew grieving from those perspectives but really it's quite separate when you're experiencing it yourself. That is a much deeper level of understanding. Absolutely. And also I, I, uh, I wanted to just say that I do think uh, when you are, you said someone important in your household, but I also think spouse loss because of the fact that you're so physically connected to that person. Yes, um, has a has a particular quality. I would agree. Um, so uh, you know, to have to suddenly have the person that you share all that daily stuff with, you share touch with, you're you're physically integrated with, I guess. Yeah, be gone does have a particular impact. Did you find that? Yes, I I definitely agree with what you've said. This is a person that you are very close to. I think when people talk about your soulmate, I think that's what they're talking about, that people are so closely aligned that they have some kind of spiritual or soulful connection. And you may have soul sisters, soul brothers, people that you feel very close to, but as you suggest, someone who is your spouse, this is a person that you are very connected to. And so it is a huge loss, for sure. And so the next thing that comes to my mind is just that your book is more organized by... Um, ways to support yourself as opposed to uh, ways to do grief. <laughs> you know, grief, I think you said several times, you know, um, grief is individual, it takes its own path. And what I found in your in your mapping out of how to navigate, uh, which goes with napping, I guess, um, is that it was things to make you more resilient in facing that unpredictability, perhaps. Yes. The book is written in such a way that a person can pick it up and start wherever they want. I had one person who said that she started near the end because one of the chapters just called out to her and she wanted to start there. Uh I don't think that there's any one path that grieving people follow, but the book has two exercises in each chapter for people to jot a few things down. And it's not that any of these take very long. In fact, they might be done in 
half-hour segments, but it's a way to help you with a grieving process because this is not something we talk about in our culture. In fact, it seems it's a little taboo. It's take your three days off of work and get back in the saddle. <laughs> Absolutely. Be able be able to talk about it, think about it, and of course the grieving person does think about what they have lost, does have a lot of emotion. So these exercises in each chapter are set up to help a person be able to have a way to process their grieving. And one of the ones that I really found most useful, because of course I did these things myself, first of all, the gratitude journal. I really found that on bad days, I needed to have some way to lift myself up. And I did a gratitude journal for a whole year after my husband died. And then I did a second gratitude journal for a whole year after my father died. Mm -hmm. Now, my father was 90 when he died, and it was an expected death. It wasn't sudden like my husband's situation at at a very young age. I consider 54 very young. Very young, yes. Yes. You know, I want to talk more about this um, how gratitude and grief relate, and mm-hmm. it's time for our break. So let's let's come back to that when we're when we're done with the break, done with our break. Okay. Uh, and listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, email, the whole works. And to find Janice Johnston, go to janicejohnston.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Janice Johnston, author of Midlife Maze, uh, about how to kind of uh, walk ourselves through the losses that come to us often in midlife. And I suppose they would apply beyond as well. And before the the break, uh, Jan, we were talking about um, how deeply you engaged in gratitude in the process of grief and during the break I was saying a lot of people find that an odd suggestion to focus on gratitude when you're grieving but I do uh, very much agree that that has a way of balancing the harder emotions but how did you how did you think to do that you know what what helped you to come to the conclusion that you needed to find things to be grateful for? Well, I was having some really tough days, and I knew about keeping a gratitude journal. I had never kept one, but I knew about the technique, and so I decided that I would try it, and the very first day that I tried it, it was helpful to me. I have outlined a very simple way to keep a gratitude journal. And again, this takes a very little amount of time, but has a very big outcome. Mm -hmm. So for me, I kept this journal for a full year after my husband died. I kept a small journal by my bed on my nightstand, and every night before I went to bed, I would write down one or two things that had happened during the day that I was grateful for. They were small things a lot of times, but it serves two purposes. Not only are you putting yourself into a different calm space before you go to sleep, and sometimes that's a challenge after a loss, but it also serves a purpose the very next day. Let's say you are having a tough day the next day. What I would tell myself would be, oh, I haven't been really focused on what I'm grateful for. I better think of something because tonight I need something to write in my journal. So it would help me Uh turn a corner in my mind. And that's what is so useful. We have to turn a corner, many corners, to be able to look ahead and to feel like there is meaning, there is a purpose in our life, and that we're going to make it. 
Well, you know, I think you might be talking around the edges about something that you talked about a lot in your book, which is uh, kind of maintaining a growth mindset. Yeah. Because if you're just looking at it as a terrible thing you're enduring, uh, to me it's less likely you're going to engage in things that, that take you through it into a new place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I really like this, I, you know, when I, when I was reading, oh, growth mindset, yes. <laughs> because uh, if, I've thought a lot about if I could only pick one quality that all, all the people I work with would have. Um, I've often thought it would be that they would all have the idea that out of bad experience, something might come. Yes. You know, some meaning, some some new life, some different something. Um, seems to be, that and the relationship we develop seem to be the only two things that predict at all um, what happens in that room. Uh, and, and that's a little bit what you're talking about with growth mindset, isn't it? Yes, it is. This is an idea that was developed by a psychologist at Stanford University. Her name is Carol Dweck. And she talks about the difference between having a fixed mindset where you believe that perhaps your IQ is set, that you can never have any more IQ points, that your personality is like plaster. How you are today is how you will be for the rest of your life versus having a growth mindset where you see that your potential really is not known. There are things that you might develop later in life. Not too many of us will turn out to be like the artist, affectionately called Grandma Moses. She didn't start painting until her late 70s, but... There are things that all of us can discover about ourselves and ways that we can keep growing. And so having that knowledge that we can keep growing, in fact, midlife is not a time when you stop developing your intelligence. Mm. In fact, you have in, in many ways what is called greater crystallized intelligence. I just love this. Crystallized intelligence, that's mm -hmm. great. (laughs) Yes, you've, you've learned a lot of life wisdom and you are better able to think up solutions for certain kinds of problems. So we have the capacity to keep growing and I think that is where there is a tremendous amount of hope. You know, that, that, that so resonates with me. I recently ran into, uh, had some time with an old friend that I hadn't seen in a long time who knew me before my wife's illness, mm. knew me through that and then after. Mm-hmm. And she was saying... Um, the person that I knew at the start is nothing like you now. <laughs> that that experience totally changed you. You used to be so painfully shy. And it's so true. 
And <laughs> I I had thought maybe I've like made this story in my head about back then. It was so reinforcing, it was so validating to have someone know that about me. Yeah. Uh, everything everything I do now I couldn't have done before that experience. Yes. It wouldn't have been in character with who I was at that time. So I'm using myself as an example of what you're talking about. Um, yeah. incredible, huge changes. Mm-hmm. The yeah. biggest of a lifetime, maybe. <laughs> it's possible to live a really wonderful life after a significant loss, but I would say you have to put in effort. It doesn't just happen. You have to have an intention to keep growing. And that is so powerful to be able to figure out that you set your course for your personality in so many ways. And of course, the the plastic kind of personality is more of a possibility these days than the plaster kind. I think in the past, Mm. people felt that they were just stuck. However they were in midlife, well, that's the way they were going to end up being. But that's not true. We know about the brain, that there's plasticity in the brain. But the same is true for personalities and how you respond to things. So your example of losing that extremely shy part of you, that's a really good role modeling for other people. I'm glad you're talking about that. Well, and also I would say um, at moments of unfamiliarity, it can come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. If I'm going to go present to a group of strangers for the first time, if I'm going into a social situation where I no- don't know anybody, you know, mm-hmm. I will feel that way for a minute and I'll go, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, it's not as if there that somehow got subtracted from the possibility of human experience. It just doesn't, uh, I don't believe it, I guess, or <laughs> it, doesn't it doesn't affect doesn't me to any over, great degree. I think is the yes. way that, that it possibly was taking over. And, and actually, these parts of our personality are just trying to protect us. It's not that there are the bad parts of the personality and the good parts. No, all of the parts really are trying to protect us. Certainly anger tries to protect us. Absolutely. Once we figure that out, and that's really an important exercise in the book, to draw a personality map to sketch what is, going on in my personality, and you don't have to capture every single part, but I did this with my clients, with many of my clients, and it's quite revealing to see how a personality map at one point in time might be very different from the one that you would sketch six months later. Yes, both because you actually have changed and because you might become aware of things that had been, one of my teachers says, um, the hardest thing to see is your own quirks. <laughs> and, 
you might somehow get a little glimmer of one of your own, you know, little things that everyone else probably is very clear about. <laughs> but yes. a little, that is a little elusive to yourself. So mm-hmm. I can imagine some things it would be seeing more and some things it would be actual changes in what is prominent. Yes, that be- both are true. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I found that interesting, the idea of um, sort of, you call them personality roles, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it sort of like, I, I have a child in theater, so roles always involve, for me, the idea of um, stage, you know, a, a, a part you're playing. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking of it in that way? Yes. Because what happens is maybe with one friend, you play out certain parts on your stage, your personal stage, in one way. But with another friend who is very different in terms of their personality from friend number one, you might play out different roles in your personality when you're with that person. So it is kind of a personal staging, and we're multidimensional. We're not just one way, and as, it, as you have so wisely pointed out, sometimes you're a little shy, and other times you're not. So all of us really have that ability to play out different parts or roles of ourselves depending upon the other people around us. And, you know, I find that my clients struggle with this a lot. Are they being, uh, if they're being one way, are they faking, you know? <laughs> is, is it real or is the real them the some other part? Um <laughs> Oh, well, but, it's both uh, and. <laughs> both and, exactly. That's that's exactly where I was going. That as both long as, and. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, honestly, I kind of come, come back to the point, and you do talk a lot about uh, mindfulness and presence a lot in the book, yes. that it's a matter of whether you're feeling real at the moment in the way that you're expressing yourself and, and the way that you're communicating with other people, or are you kind of faking, you know, Hiding yourself, I guess. Exactly. So you brought up mindfulness, and I do write about that in the book. It's so important to be able to just come to that centered sense of self-territory that each person has, that core of being where you are calm, and you're not in one of those parts. You're You're not shy or... You're not the life of the party. You are much more the witness. Who's watching you be shy or who's watching you be the life of the party? And the way you can get to that centered self is just by taking long, deep breaths because when you do that, you are in the present moment. And that's actually a good way to move forward. Because when you first have a significant loss, 
you are so much living in the past. You're yearning mm-hmm. for the person that you missed, or perhaps it's a job. Let's say a person gets fired from their job. That happened to a number of my clients. Yes. You're yearning for the job that you don't have anymore. Living in the past is not going to be very helpful in terms of you figuring out how can I be resilient? How can I find some peace of mind? Similarly, if you're always thinking about the future, if you're always trying to fix the future, oh, tomorrow I will whatever, that's not being able to be resilient if that's the only way that you're thinking. It's all about what's going to happen later, what's going to happen later. So trying to find how you can be in the present moment, which is really what mindfulness is all about, is a very powerful practice. And it's easier than yes. people think. I, I, <laughs> I find people... And, and the other thing that I want to just throw in there is that uh, there are so many ways to do it. Yes. Um, you know, my clients have all kinds of fascinating ways to get into the present moment, some of which I, you know, I wouldn't have thought of, but they okay. find they find their way, right? Yes. Knitting or, you know, Absolutely. whatever it is where they're not either anticipating or dreading the future or thinking about the past. They're just actively attentive to the present moment. That's you know, when we, it's about time for our next break. But okay. I was uh, I want I don't want to um, go away from here without talking about these three areas that you describe in the book for um kind of moving yourself forward, uh, the basic needs, animating your life, and pursuing your bucket list. Um, okay. Let's go into that some when we're, uh, when we're back. Okay. And listeners, you can find links to my website at, at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Janice Johnston, go to JaniceJohnston.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Janice Johnston, who wrote Midlife Maze, A Map to Recovery and Rediscovery After Loss. And before the break, uh, Jan, we were talking about um, a few things. I I guess I'd say you encourage people to attend to in grief and loss, but then, of course, we could also say just in life. Um, yes. may maybe more critically essential uh, at moments of challenge, but um, I, I've found they've become, uh, they were all familiar to me. They've become kind of the cornerstone of life in general, having found their value in a really difficult time. Um, so let's start with meeting the five basic needs um, I know this refers originally to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I like that you sort of said, no, we can, we don't have to go in order. Kind of like, uh, <laughs> we don't have to go in order in grief, nor could we ever possibly, <laughs> but also we don't have to go in order when it comes to the different aspects of living that are important. Yes? Yes, yes. You've been reading. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I I definitely do read the book. (laughs) Um, Abraham Maslow was a wonderful psychologist, and he wrote about basic needs in the 1960s. So what I have written about is a user-friendly version of what Maslow wrote. I talk about five basic needs, and they are A, B, C, D, E in reverse order just to be able to remember them. But this doesn't mean that you follow them exactly in this order. But we will take them starting with E. E stands for energy. This, to me, is so important that after a significant loss, You find ways to get enough sleep, and that can be a challenge. The gratitude journal can help. You find a way to have nutritious food in your refrigerator. You find some way to get exercise. You meet basic needs for energy. Going on to D, D stands for discipline, and This is not a bad word, discipline. In fact, (laughs) it really just means how can you know that you're going to have food in your refrigerator that will be nutritious? How can you get to your job on time? How can you have a little organization so that you make time in your day to be able to have some self-compassion? C, creativity. I totally believe that 
all of us are creative beings in different ways. We have different talents, different skill sets. But if you can find something that uses your creativity every day, even if it's a small amount of time, that that is a basic need. B, belonging. How can you find people that you care about to spend time with? These might be people in your family, might be friends, neighbors, colleagues, work associates, but all of us need to have a tribe. Who's in your tribe? Who do you feel that you belong to? And finally, A stands for ability. I believe that we need to figure out ways that we can meet our ability potential. So these five needs, if you can do something, even if it's a little something every day, to meet this EDCBA list, and not necessarily in that order, because our needs are pretty much constant. And if you have people who are in your household living with you, you know that people's needs collide. (laughs) When one person wants to eat, uh, somebody else wants to do something else. So it's pretty tricky when you have people in the household that need something different than you need at a particular moment. And that's partly where the discipline comes in. How can you organize your time so that everybody's needs have a chance of being met? It's much trickier to meet your basic needs after a significant loss because you aren't feeling very energetic. But it's so important. Well, it's interesting, too, because um, I would say in early, very early grief, for me anyway, mm-hmm. there was energy uh, cultivation. I, I I pretty much fell apart if I didn't, you know, do some basic things for my body. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of creativity. Grief was a very creative process. For me, I was singing a lot. I was gardening a lot. I had to, you yeah. know. Um, I don't need to do it quite as much in a regular year. Um, belonging was pretty good, mm-hmm. but but discipline and ability. Uh, I wasn't even concerned about reaching my potential, although I suppose that in a way I was at the moment. But my focus on that took a long time to generate. Yeah. Uh, so I could imagine that that might be different for different people. In fact, I, I ran into a friend the other day. She just finished a book. I had her on the show a few weeks ago, actually, uh, about life after cancer. And um, she, she finished the book after her husband died of a heart attack. Uh, because she had a contract for the book, and she said that saved her life. Yes. Um, for me, that would have been terrible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to have some pressure to finish a book at that moment. I can't even picture it. So it feels to me as if perhaps 
we're very, very individual in terms of what takes prominence at that time. I totally agree. I think what works for one person may not work so well for someone else. And, of course, we organize our days in very different ways. So you found that singing was helpful. Me too. And there's a reason why that is true. I write about that. Actually, music can stimulate the social engagement system in the brain. Grieving shuts that down, and that describes why you might have that blank stare on your face. Sometimes we call that flat facial affect, or why you might be rather defensive, and that wasn't really the way you were prior to your loss. Mm. But when you hear music, it really turns on your social engagement system in your brain. So it's very, very interesting how music can just lift you. And I listen to a lot of music. I love music anyway, but I found music to be enormously helpful when I was in my grieving process. So we all kind of look for different avenues, perhaps, but there are some known avenues that really make a difference. For sure. And, you know, when you you now put music... um, I'm thinking of the sing- songs I sang that day, and there were three or four songs I sang every day mm-hmm. uh, for the entire first year after she died. Oh, that's um, cool. And they were all um, uh, grief-related. And so now it occurs to me that it connected me to the humanity of grievers. Yes, it did. That. That somehow when I sang those songs, I was part of a whole instead of little me doing it all by myself. I'd never thought of it that way before, but I think that was part of the power of it. Yes, I I think you've captured the power of singing. Amazing that it can do that, huh? Uh, It is amazing. Yes, indeed. It is amazing. And that's part of the whole creativity need. I've put singing and music into creativity. I guess you could also say that it has something to do with ability if you make that your career. But for a lot of us, it's not our main career. It's just something we do as a creative act. However it is for you, it's fine. You are going to be organizing your needs according to what fits you, how you are growing. Absolutely. And I I also just want to throw in there, I'm definitely pursuing reaching my potential as a singer. I'm with a professional choir and all that, but I'm not doing it for a living. And yet... I think that sense of reaching one's potential, uh, activating ability, mm-hmm. uh, can happen in those other areas too, yes? Yes. And, you know, we only have uh, <laughs> um, 
you know, just a couple more minutes, I, I'm tempted to sing, but <laughs> we'll do that the next time. <laughs> because I want to get in the other two aspects of this okay. um uh, that that you kind of put in there, um, animating your family and work light, life and pursuing your bucket list. Um, I'm actually going on a on a tour of the southern states to sing in October. Now, oh, doing oh. something like that, I'm going to walk the Selma Bridge with which my dad walked when I was a kid. Oh. Um, uh, you know, so <laughs> I think that's going to be very bucket listish. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so it, that list could change, yes. Yeah. But um, but still, because of course I never could have thought of that. It 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 just my choir just got asked to do it, you know. But yeah. um, that sense of adventure, maybe. Would you think Absolutely. of bucket list that way? Yes, I would think of adding things to your bucket list because that's part of having a growth mindset. Instead of looking at the bucket list that maybe you had before your wife died, maybe that bucket list needed to be updated every year that we are privileged to be alive. We might think of something new, something that does have a sense of adventure or is just learning a new skill. Absolutely. All those things count for a bucket my, list. Yes. My second wife and I, every uh, our birthdays are in the same month, and every year since we turned 60, we've done an adventure, including uh, when I was 60, I ziplined, and I used to be a, uh, horribly phobic about heights. <laughs> so it's never too late. <laughs> well, that's a good example of changing your bucket list. Isn't it? <laughs> never would have occurred to me earlier in my life, believe me. <laughs> but it was it was once I, I had to get them to push me off. I couldn't I couldn't jump. But once I was flying it was fine. So <laughs> we'll end there for today. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you had a happy landing. I really appreciate you being here today. It's been been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed the time, Cheryl. Good. And uh, listeners, to find Janice Johnston and her book, you can go to JaniceJohnston.com. Next week, I'll have Nancy Saltzman. Her book, Radical Survival... Survivor tells the story of how she chose to go on living and find a new purpose after living through cancer twice and then losing her husband and two sons in a plane crash. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.